Greetings on the second Sunday in the season of Easter. If you are tuning in without the worship resources that we posted online, we have just read the entire chapter of Acts 10. Uh, And in this story, we encounter a catalytic moment that breaks open the whole world to receive the gospel of Jesus. What had started as a small movement within the story of Israel was now positioned to do what it was always intended to do, to go out into all the nations that they might be blessed by becoming part of the people of God through faith in Jesus. While the story has world-reaching implications, and while it includes quite a few different characters, most of its message is told in the conversion of two main characters, Peter, the fisherman and disciple of Jesus on the one hand, and Cornelius, a Roman centurion, a high-ranking officer in the Roman army on the other. In my last sermon before the season of Lent this year, I preached on the conversion of Peter the fisherman. And if you missed that one or you want to revisit some of those themes, you can still check it out online under the Sermons tab on our website. But today we're going to focus our attention on Cornelius, the conversion of a Roman. At this point, I just want to take a minute and talk about conversion because I think it's misunderstood as a term in the Christian West. Sometimes conversion is misunderstood as a one-time event in which a person goes from not trusting or believing in Jesus to all of a sudden becoming his disciple. And that's certainly one way we could use the word, but the problem with that as a static definition is that it assumes conversion as a one-time momentary threshold from unbelief to belief. The reality is, conversion is the beginning of the process of discipleship. A true follower of Jesus is converted, but is always converting. That's an important designation because it communicates that the expectation is a life of growth and making adjustments and learning and even failing. That's the normal Christian life. And if we don't forget that growing and learning and and failing is part of the normal Christian life, we might get discouraged if we think about it a different way. So, we saw this when we focused on Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He had been a live witness to the resurrection. He was a devout follower of the risen Christ, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, Peter still had converting to do. Jesus was changing Peter's heart and mind about how he viewed non-Jewish people like Cornelius. What he came to understand is that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, children— Eastern or Western or whoever puts their faith in Jesus and turns from a life of sin can be in on the conversion journey together. As we turn our attention now to the conversion of Cornelius, I want us to pay attention to three themes in the story. First, the first theme is, if we seek more of God, we will find more of God. Second, God graciously meets us where we are. And third, the great cost of following Jesus is met by an even greater reward. Before we can really understand the significance of this story, though, we have to understand what kind of man we're dealing with with Cornelius. While we don't have a lot of information about him specifically, we know quite a bit about Roman military life and the life of a centurion in the first century like the the life that Cornelius was living. So Cornelius was one of the most common names in the Roman world, 
and it was especially common among freedmen. That means people who had come from a life of slavery, but either bought their way to freedom or had earned it through military or other service to their country. Cornelius was likely the descendant of a freedman, meaning that he was born a Roman citizen, but born into a family that was not in the upper classes of society. Cornelius was a centurion, and in the early first century AD, that meant that he led around 80 to 100 soldiers, and one of several centurions that made up of a, a, a legion. So, Cornelius was, or had been, the centurion of the so-called Italian cohort, a well-known group of archers stationed in Caesarea, which was in Palestine. By the time of our story in Acts 10, it's very possible that Cornelius was retired from military service. Now, that's only speculation, but there are a few reasons for me thinking that he may have been retired. And the first and the, and the biggest case for that is that he had a family. Romans didn't allow their officers or soldiers to marry. There were no married housing of, or, or barracks for married people in the military. Now, it wasn't unheard of for Roman soldiers or officers to have secret families. And in the second and third centuries, they relaxed that law a bit. So, like if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, you'll notice that he had this family kind of on the side in secret, and, and he dreamed of one day retiring uh, at, when, when he could return to them and, and live with them forever. But most likely, the Cornelius of the Bible didn't have a family until after his service was over. And in the first century AD, Roman soldiers could retire from the military service after 20 years of service. So the average age of enlistment was around 17 years old, and that means that in this story, Cornelius could have been in his 40s and still had had a wife and children. Retired centurions would often keep their title because it carried social status, so that's why the Bible might refer to him as, as Cornelius the Centurion. Now, the military life was hard, and in the first century, only about 50% of combat veterans made it to 20 years. For those who did, and like Cornelius, rose to the rank of Centurion, they would have had a fine retirement, enough to have servants, a modest villa, and financial security for the rest of their life. And what you have to understand about Cornelius is that the Roman military personnel, they had to be unflinchingly devoted to the emperor and to the state. To be a good Roman soldier meant that maintaining the cult of the emperor, contributing to Roman society, and being loyal to Rome above everything else. And it's with that backdrop that we see Cornelius as a seeker. He's described as a devout man who feared the God of Israel. That means he greatly respected Yahweh and had led his whole household to do the same. He prayed regularly and even gave alms, which is uh, another way of saying that he gave money to those in need around him, and his giving was an act of loyalty to God, not as an act of bringing praise for himself. Cornelius was known as a God-fearer, that means that he was a Gentile who was seeking after the God of Israel. He was a man who prayed to God, a man who read the Jewish scriptures. But as a Gentile, he wasn't allowed to worship at the temple, and he wouldn't have been part of the local synagogue of Jewish people. But he was sure seeking, wasn't he? So one day, while he's praying, God appears to him in the form of an angel and answers this man's seeking. Now, I can't stress it enough that God can work in mysterious ways. I mean, this is a God who shows up in burning bushes 
and in disembodied hands that write on walls. He's shown up in pillars of smoke and fire and in dreams and visions, and so we should never try and limit what we think God can and can't do. But if you want to know God more, you don't have to wait for the out of the ordinary to happen. There are tried and tested ways of exposing ourselves to the life of God. And I think it's no accident that when the Holy Spirit comes on the believers at Pentecost, for example, it's in the context of one of their regular worship gatherings. That's where you typically meet God, is in worship. And when Jesus heals the lame man through the ministry of Peter and John in the temple, it was in the context of their daily prayer routine. And so, it's no accident that both Peter and Cornelius are praying in this story when they have visions from God leading them on. If you seek God in prayer, and in the study of Scripture, and in the community life of the church, and in obedient service, then you are bound to encounter Jesus. Many of us have friends and family who might not follow Jesus yet, but they're seeking Him in all sorts of ways. So don't give up on them, because to those who knock on the door of faith, the door will be opened. And this leads us to the second theme. God graciously meets us where we are. God reaches Roman centurions where they're at. God didn't wait until Cornelius had everything figured out, and he sure didn't wait until Cornelius had the right theology. After all, as a Roman centurion, he would have had to make regular sacrifices and pledges of allegiance to Caesar. He would have likely had household idols and participated in pagan religious ceremonies. When Peter shows up at his house later in chapter 10, Cornelius betrays his pagan learnings uh, by bowing down in worship before Peter. And this was based on the mistaken belief that special people, like Peter, who was sent from God, were part divine. So what a grace and mercy that God meets us where we are. You know, you may not feel particularly close to God right now. You might not feel particularly worthy of God's presence. But we have a God who consistently meets us where we are, not where we think we ought to be, not where he demands that we arrive someday. Maybe you need that grace today. I I invite you to receive it as an encouragement, as a gift, that you are not too far gone for Jesus, and that he is there when you turn to him. And maybe you need to hear this as a challenge as well. When you're tempted to be judgmental about other people, how might we behave like Jesus by meeting them where they are? As Bill Henson likes to say, you have to meet people where they are because you can't meet them where they're not. And this leads us to the third theme I want to explore in the text. God may meet us where we are, but he always wants to take us further. The journey of following Jesus is costly but it is met by an even greater reward. There are lots of commentaries and sermons on Acts 10 about the barriers that Peter felt like he had to go through uh, in order to be even under the same roof with a Roman like, like Cornelius. But consider it from the other way around. Cornelius was a made man. I mean, he had the life that most people in the empire would have looked up to. And in many ways, Cornelius is the poster child for the American dream. I mean, he comes from a humble background of freed slaves. He was an ethnic outsider who earned his citizenship. 
He started at the lower rungs of the social ladder and ascended through the respected ranks to the level of centurion. He had financial security for life. He had disposable income to give away and enough to even hire servants and host extended family at his house. He was respected politically and socially. He had to have been a hard worker to get from where he started to where he was. I mean, this guy was a winner in the eyes of the world. He embodied the things that so many people today think will make them happy. And yet this high-ranking official in the most powerful nation of that time was about to pledge his allegiance to a crucified man who belonged to the Jews, the very people that he had helped keep in check as a soldier his whole career. Cornelius had to humble himself before he could make that transition. In the ancient world, when a person of high rank sent a representative on an errand, that representative carried with them the reputation and the honor of the official. So, for Cornelius to send someone in his name to go to Joppa in order to find a man from this vision that he had, I mean, that's a humbling thing. For him to send a representative to stay in the home of a Jewish tanner, that was the same thing as he himself staying with a Jewish tanner. And that was an act way below his station in society. And it was an act that, if he was made public, could have brought shame on him and his family. So Cornelius is taking a social risk by sending people to investigate Peter. But there's something about following God that gets to the heart of who we are. I mean, after all, it's the heart that Jesus is interested in. He doesn't care as much about how religious you are or how clean you are on the outside. Or, I mean, none of that matters if the inside of you is rotting. It reminds me of the story of Naaman the Syrian. He was a man of great rank who had leprosy on the outside. And, and he went to Elisha the prophet to see if God would heal him. Now, God could have spoken, uh, just said the word and healed this great man, but instead, he has him go dip in the river seven times. And at first, Naaman is offended. I mean, this is a humbling, almost a, uh, an insult to have this high-ranking man do this silly thing. But once he does it, once he's humbled, it not only brings about the healing of Naaman's body, but it changes his heart and he turns and he worships the living God. We are going through a humbling season in the world now. The coronavirus has stolen our well-constructed ways of interacting with the world. Or at least, it's made some of them obsolete. Our identities, like, as hard workers, for example, has been challenged. If the work that you once did is now forbidden, or if it's altered so drastically that you don't know how to be effective anymore, and if you don't feel good about your work, then you might not feel so good about who you are. Or take our identities as good students. They're totally on the line when you can't go to school. Or identity as good parents is put into question when we feel like our bag of tricks ran out two weeks ago. And we feel like we're failing a lot more than we're succeeding. And all of a sudden, you have this massive spiritual crisis because you realize that even though you say you're a child of God and that your identity is in Christ, You've really been building a castle made of your own achievement and ego and productivity. Friends, the good news is that these are precisely the cracks in our armor that make it possible for us to grow. There's something in our being humbled that opens us up to the new work of God. When you're at the end of your resources, 
God tends to bring his to bear on the situation. So I just leave you with a couple questions and I'm asking them myself. What is your prayer this week? In what ways are you seeing the end of yourself, the limit to your resources? In what way are you seeing the end of your ability to be who you believe Jesus wants you to be? And how might you turn that into a prayer of help to the living God? You know, if you're like me, you really don't have anywhere else to go right now. There's no one hurrying you to get anywhere. And I just encourage you to maybe pause right now between now and communion and and jot down some ideas or turn your longings into a prayer to the gracious one who hears us and answers those who knock. Would you pray with me? Risen and reigning Jesus, the one who hears us when we knock, the one who meets us where we are, the one who gently yet consistently challenges us to go deeper, to go further in and farther up with you. Would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to see our deepest need, not just our felt need, but deep on the inside, help us to be honest with the limit of our powers, the limit of our competency, the limit of our ability to hold it all together. And instead of hiding this from you like we hide it from so many others, help us to bring it to you, open and honest, to show you our cracks, our wounds. Lord, we can trust you not to exploit us, not to hurt us, but to enter into those cracks and to bring healing and to show us your power and your strength where we've run out of our own. Lord, teach us in these vulnerable days lessons that we might not have learned before about our deep trust and need for you. And I pray that these lessons would be ones that we don't forget when you bring healing to our land. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen.